continue to move through the book of Ecclesiastes, just three verses tonight. And I think you would probably agree that there are moments in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon is waxing quite philosophical. And what he is doing is he is looking out at creation and he is gathering even from his own experience and, of course, speaking as the Spirit and writing as the Spirit moves him to provide for us, at times, challenging statements. Now, some of those statements are challenging because we don't want him to be right, and some of those statements are challenging because they are, at times, a bit heady. Tonight is one of those. I ask that you would bear with me as I think about this upcoming conference at the end of the week. I'm teaching on apologetics, and I've actually taught on this actual subject before, and that is the call that Christ has given to his church to name and to order things, both in the fulfillment of the creation mandate and in the Great Commission, to name and order things in such a way that we exhibit and expand the dominion of Christ's righteousness over the earth. And when we do not do that out of disordered affections and a longing to promote our own kingdom, we labor for something that will not endure. We are laboring against what Christ would have established on earth. So think of those things as I read, and then we'll dive right in in just a moment. Chapter 6 of the book of Ecclesiastes, beginning in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, even now, by your Spirit, rule in our hearts in such a way that we might ever live for you, grow in grace, and learn and love what it means to order things after the fashion that you began, not only in creation, but in that glorious work of recreation, redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. If there was ever a little section of the scriptures that are for us a balm and corrective to the way that modern man has come to live and think of themselves, it is this tonight. And it reminds us of our call, not only to rightly order our affections, our affairs, our lives, but encourage our neighbor and others to live not outside of the design of God, but under God's sovereign, saving, ordered, righteous hand. Two points that I want to make this evening. The first, the origin of everything. The origin of everything. And then secondly, naming poorly and naming well. Naming poorly and naming well. Let's look at the origin of everything. You may or may not be familiar with or have even read The Origin of the Species, in which Charles Darwin seeks to create a new narrative that removes the Lord from the center 
of the cosmos and of cosmology or the beginning of all things. But we rightly confess as Christians that it is in Christ in whom we live and move and have our being. We read this in Acts chapter 17. Uh, It's actually a quote from the Old Testament. We live and we move and have our being in Christ, the eternal logos. Now, what Solomon is trying to do is to get men to submit to the way things are, to not dispute, at the end of verse 10, to dispute with the one who is stronger than we are. Well, who is that strong one? Well, we would confess that it is the Lord. And we are living because God has given us life. We are man and woman because God has made us so. We breathe air. We walk upon the dirt. We drink water, run, swim, laugh talk about things that matter. We share our lives because God has made us so. Up is up, down is down, north, east, south, west. All of these things are real because God has made them so by his decrees and design. And not only has God made all things, but he sovereignly rules all things. Job, in chapter 12, verse 10, he says, in his hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind. Your lungs open and close. They don't really close. They expand and contract. That's the word. Those are the words I'm looking for because God causes them to do that. All things fall out in accordance with his will. He oversees and decrees everything. And not only is he origin, but he is the blessed one who dwells in the fellowship of the persons, so that we may know him and he us in glorious fellowship. Now, sinful fallen men do not love the fact that they are made by God and for God. And so fallen man hates the notion and continually rejects the idea that there is a God who is in charge and that we are not in charge. And so what sinful man endeavors to do is rename, to use the word that we find here, whatever has come to be has already been named. God has ordered everything. And so I want you to think of the word naming in the same way that you think of ordering. Man endeavors to rename or reorder that which God has named or ordered, that which cannot change. Though try as we might, we cannot change it. And so to be clear, when we speak of the naming of God, we refer to his divine ordering, the establishing of the boundaries of sea and land, of light and dark. All of this God has ordered. And when we, being made by God, were called also to order, we do so as those who are endeavoring to follow the righteous ordering of God as God began all things. Are you following me? Are you with me? If we are to live in God's world, we must live on God's terms. And so he who has named has ordered and called things for his glory. Children's Catechism asks us that question. For what did God make all things? Or why did God make you in all things? For his own, as many children say, glory. That L and R can be very difficult at times. For his own glory. Now you may think, well, that is elementary. And I say, yes, it is blessed in its 
elementary nature. Like gravity itself, it is far more prevalent, it is far more fundamental even than the laws of thermodynamics. Everything exists for the glory of God. And so God has made all things, and he has organized and arranged and established categories and rules and laws and all of these things in the space of six days, and then he rested. And all of this ordered for his own glory. He has done this not only to glorify himself, but to provide for men and all creatures and all of creation a place where they too might live and move and have their being, and so order themselves after the pattern that he began. And so we even speak of rest and work, the Lord's Day or the Sabbath, and the other six days we labor. All of this is designed by God and man, in their sinfulness, wants to throw off, in fact, delights in the throwing off of what we call the shackles of God's order. And the only reason we call it a shackle is because we do not love the order of God. We want to create another order, and yet God is the one whom Solomon would say is stronger than we. And try as we might, what does Solomon remind us of? We are not able to dispute with the one who is stronger than we, or he, you and me. We cannot do it. Why do we do it? Well, we revel in it. We revel in it because we are, even as believers, rebellious. And prior to our coming to salvation, all we can be is rebellious. We are incapable of submission apart from the Holy Spirit at work in us. But if we are to identify the characters here, look at verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. God has ordered, God has decreed, and it is known what man is. Well, what is man? Man, made in the image of God, we are lesser than, less powerful, we are creatures, And because of our creatureliness, we are not able to stand before a holy, mighty, creating God and shake our fists and say, we want it to be another way. Shall the clay say to the potter, Romans 9, I don't like how you made me. And children, the sooner you learn that you will not win an argument with God about what he has designed you to do and to be, the happier your life will be. Live by God's design. And so we go to the origin of everything. And it is not mutation. It is not bacteria. You are not the son of a monkey. You are the children of the Most High God. And you are made for him. And you are made by him. And is this not truly a glorious reality? That we are his We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for love and good deeds. So we must know our origin. We must know who made us and what we are made for if we are to be ordered aright, if we are to name in a way that is not contrary to and against what God has established. And so the Lord has begun something and he calls us into that workmanship to build the kingdom, to take dominion, 
to labor unto the glory of God. That is our primary objective, but we will never achieve that objective if we do not govern our lives by the boundaries that God has established. And so we speak of the goal, and we also speak of morality, or the boundaries that we are to order our lives by. When Christ speaks of our building a life upon the sand, he uses an illustration that is readily understandable to us. If you want to build a house that will stand the test of time, you do not build it on a shaky foundation. In the same way, if you wish to order your life, you must not build your life on the shifting sand of lawlessness and idolatry and corruption. But rather, we are to build our life upon Christ Jesus And when Christ says this, what he means is all that God has revealed in his word, the law and the gospel. So let's move to the second point. The second point this evening, naming poorly and naming well. Let's talk about poorly first. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 23, we read, Woe to those who call or name evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. That's called a what? A drunkard. And valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bride and deprive the innocent of his right. Isaiah is referring to the upending of sinful men, their activity of suppressing, Romans 1, and exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And you need to realize that these are the kinds of people that you live among if you're a Christian and you're endeavoring to order your affections and your affairs aright. You live among a people who call good evil and evil good, who say that darkness is light, And light for darkness. These are the people that called Christ the son of the devil. Who were these people? They were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were wise in their own eyes. And though they gathered some of the law of God and made it their foundation, at the very heart of what they were trying to do is they were seeking to make the law of God the means by which they would bring glory unto themselves and not Christ the Redeemer. And the reason they did not receive Christ is because they were confident of their own righteousness apart from Christ Jesus. And so to name poorly is to call good evil and evil good. And this is what makes us children of wrath. And we experience this wrath and discord and chaos because we are ever seeking to reorder our lives after a pattern and a false righteousness that only brings discord and corruption. This is what post-modernity is. And you've heard this phrase, and I've said it from the pulpit, and this is where it gets maybe a bit philosophical. You live among a people who say, my truth. This is my truth. I cannot stand this way of talking because it doesn't mean anything. And it doesn't hold up to the scrutiny of any kind of test or moral test. Men name poorly because they are vying for God's job. 
So this is what they're endeavoring to do. Sinful man wants something that they know is morally disordered. They know that is wicked and corrupt. And because they want something they know that they should not have, they create a moral system that justifies their unrighteous affections so that they can have it and seek to assuage even the guilt that is in their hearts because they're still made in God's image. They still have the law of God written in their hearts. But because their affections are disordered, in order to love without guilt that which is disordered, they must have legal disorder, moral disorder. We have not killed 65 million children in this country because we love murder. We like easy sex. That's why we've killed 65 million children. Because we love our flesh. We live in a nation now where you are rebuked in the public sphere when you say a man is a man and a woman. What has happened? When did our philosophical counselors become children and children look at adults and say, that's stupid. You're a fool for saying this. Only the philosophically sophisticated, college-educated academics are so naive and dumb in their way of thinking. They are blind. Why are they blind? Because they are entrenched in a system that is 60 feet underwater and they can't see the sky. They have no idea how to look up. They are blind and they are given over to their passions. You need to know that this is the kind of world you live in. That you live among a people that when they say an elephant, they say, no, 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 that's a mouse. And you go, are you crazy? Are you crazy? And not only that, but let's say we all agree to call an elephant a mouse. And we start calling mice elephants. That would not be so immoral because it's not really a sin against nature. But what we have done is that we have so misnamed, we have done so in the very sight of nature and law, both revealed in Scripture and on the earth, in creation. Our culture is so backwards and so blind that we have forgotten how to name in a way that follows God's design. We are disordered in our affections, and out of the disorder of our affections comes disordered life. This is how you have to do it. You make excuses. Men name poorly as a result of their disordered affections. And so Solomon says, look, if you're trying to reorder what God has ordered, what will happen? You're going to have to talk a lot. In fact, you're going to have to never stop talking. Your whole life will be a conversation that you have with yourself and with others, and you're saying, come on, support me, support me, enable my bad behavior. And so typically what happens in the chaos of disobedience is the heaping up of more and more words, of sophisticated laws that do not even need to exist. There is a kind of simplicity that comes with righteousness. In fact, the call of Adam was to make simple and knowable and apprehendable all of creation. 
In fact, let's, let's just talk about the things that men have done that brings creation into our very grasp. Have you seen the pictures that come from the Hubble telescope? Galaxies that you and I would never see. Far-reaching, light years away, this lens is open and it's just taking in light all the time. And you see the Horsehead Nebula and all of these things that rightly profess the glory of God. And though it is immense and complex, we obviously read in Scripture that God holds all of creation in the palm of his hand. Now, we do not do that. But we are in our dominion over creation, seeking to make known that which is unknown. We are seeking to corral, to order, to understand that which is mysterious. In fact, Adam was learning this prior to the fall. One of the things that Adam learned as he was naming the animals was that none of those animals were a helper fit for him. He was partnerless. He could ride a horse, but that horse could not be a suitable companion. And so God gave him a wife. And when Adam saw Eve or the woman, the man looked at the woman and said, well, this person is wholly distinct. He learned something. He learned something about himself and his own calling. He understood that he was called not only to take dominion of the creatures, but to be fruitful with his wife and move into and outside of the boundaries of the garden and make all of the earth known to bring it into his grasp, not as an idol, not as something to worship, but to glorify God in. When we have disordered affections, we add a complexity, a heaping up of words of those things that are otherwise quite simple. One of the testimonies of this recently, there's a guy named Matt Walsh. You may or may not have heard of him. He's sort of a political talking head, and he was on the Dr. Phil show recently. I don't profess to watch Dr. Phil. I heard about it. I heard him talk about it. And on this show, Matt Walsh was brought in to represent the side of sanity and biblical ethics. And then two people were brought in to help Matt understand what a woman really was. These are people who believe that by saying you're a woman, even though you're born a man, you can be a woman. And so Matt simply presented the question to these two people. Here it is. It's a complex question, although Ellie can answer it very easily. I don't want you to answer, though. <laughs> what is a woman? They couldn't say. When did that become a hard question? It became a difficult question when we lost sight of the order of God's design. That's it. It's an easy question, but not for a fool. It is an easy question, but not for the immoral. It is an easy question so long as we get our answers from a God who never changes. But we, look at verse 12, we pass like a shadow. And guess what? So too are invented moralities. They are here, then they are gone. And we reject, we give up, we abandon the call for dominion, not only over creation, but in the great commission of taking dominion of the nations for the gospel, 
if we forget what the gospel is and what the gospel can do. Which is why when we ask the vows to members, do you believe that the only plan of salvation is contained in the scriptures and that it is the true plan? Don't gloss over that question like, well, yeah, duh, because there are many who do not. They open the scriptures and they do not see that Christ is the only redeemer of the elect. Why? Because they are living a disordered life. They do not take their directives from nature and primarily from Scripture. What I'm trying to say is we cannot name something or order something rightly in a way that glorifies God, that pays homage to the one who is stronger if we do not know who God is and what is good. We cannot do it. And so Christians in particular have a clear mandate to name. Remember, name means order. Because God, whose days are not numbered under the sun, calls us to work and rest and to name as he does. And if we forfeit this way of life, we forfeit the goodness of godly labors. They're but wasted. We don't even understand what they're for. Do you ever wonder why I'm doing, what what am I doing? Maybe young people, you get that first job and you feel the dissatisfaction of the mundane Just, what's the point? Well, the point isn't ultimately to get satisfaction just in your job, but to take the resources that come from a job and then to use your wage, whatever skills you may be learning, and to use those to take dominion, to order the world as God has designed. Every moment, every opportunity, every gift And there's no better way to contrast this than the example that we have. When I say right now, I mean it started 14 minutes ago. Right? This is the disordering of secular man. Our nation is enamored with two teams they didn't even know. I ask most people, do you know who's in the Super Bowl? I don't even know. And those are the same people that are at home right now watching the Super Bowl. And they're watching two teams they don't even care about. Their affections are completely disordered. And it's not because I have a problem. I don't have a problem with sports, competition. I kind of have a problem with the NFL. They're moving in the wrong direction in terms of politics and all of that stuff. But competition and games and entertainment and all of those things are given to us by God where we can enjoy physical strenuous labor. But what we have done is we have made a game something ultimate, and this is how. The Super Bowl is silly, not because it's a football game in which two sides, just because it is ontologically foolish. It is because the Super Bowl has been set apart from something that is in competition with Lord's Day worship. So this is what we do. We use our jobs. This is the tendency of men. We take the good gifts of God, whatever they may be, Food, drink, sex, relationships, all of these things that God has given and we commit ourselves unto them so that we become gluttons and drunkards and adulterers. And I know there's a lot of other sins. And all of those things are an abuse or a disordering of our behavior because of our disordered affections. It doesn't have to be this way. 
but we make it this way. We have made mountains out of molehills so that we might see in ourselves strength and dignity, not in what God calls dignified, but because we want to celebrate humanity. We want to celebrate ourselves. I don't have a problem with stadiums, but if a stadium is not used properly, it is a sanctuary to false gods. And our cheers are tunes of adoration to those false gods. Christians are called to bring order. Now, I don't mean only Christians support amateur sports. I don't have a problem with professional sports. But what we have done is we have taken the gifts that God has given and we have said, we are going to use these things to build an altar to ourselves, much like the people at Babel. And you may wonder, why is our culture crumbling? Our culture is crumbling because it is not built upon the redeeming work of Christ, but upon that which cannot stand. The NFL is built upon sand. And I know that's not the only thing, and I don't, I'm not trying to, look, I'm recording the game. I'll try and watch it some other time. But the fact of the matter is, what they're doing, and all of these people who are in the NFL who profess Christ, they are showing themselves to have a, a priority that is out of alignment with the scriptures. And this is just an illustration. We do this with everything. We do this with wealth. We're like Midas. Everything we touch, it turns to gold. We, we are more enamored with the kingdom of ourselves and the kingdom of Christ. And this is not, or is this not Satan's great tactic to replace a God-honoring for a man-honoring dominion? One will last and the other won't. In fact, Satan's great tactic is distraction. It is to disorder our affections in such a way that they distract us from the priority and the faithful labors in Christ's church and his kingdom. So what is actually taking place here on earth is that there are two kingdoms at war. One seeks to name and order things by God's design. The other seeks to rename and disorder by, or in contrary or against God's design. And so what happens for those? It doesn't last. Empires turn to dust. They come and they go. And what we find is if we are committing ourselves to ordering and naming in such a way that is against the one who is stronger, we will but pass and there will be nothing left. And so he puts a question here at the very end. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Well, Solomon is telling us. The Spirit is telling us. And what the Spirit is telling us is this. To labor, to invest, to order, to name in such a manner that though our lives may be short, what we are doing is we are faithfully building a kingdom that will not pass. The kingdom of Christ is not vain. It is not mist, and it is not vapor. It endures forever. And what Christ does is he takes all of our little labors, and I'm not belittling your labors, but in the span of eternity, 
You are like an acorn, and it is like an oak. You are small. It is big. But God takes your faithful labors, and what he does is he establishes a kingdom that will not end. What you must do is make sure that your labors are in accordance with his word. Now, what I'm saying, especially about the stuff about the Super Bowl, I'm not trying to say, hey, good job, guys. You made the right decision. Or to be bitter because I'd rather be at home watching football. I'm really trying to express to you a way that is better, a way that will bring satisfaction, a way that will be to the world that was watching the church, a distinction that brings repentance so that we might teach the world how to name, how to order their lives, how to be governed by Scripture and find the freedom and fulfillment and that fruit that is enduring for all eternity. Let's pray.